and welcome back, back, back. We have finally returned from a month-long hiatus. Welcome to the Dog and Duck Show. We are the only Husky and Oregon Duck uh, combined podcast that gives you awesome sports content all year round, even in the off season. And uh, we are, you know, just been chomping at the bits to get back to this podcast. So with that, let me say hello and welcome my co-host, Mark. He is the duck. How are you doing, my friend? Warren, I'm I'm doing great, but it's been it's been too long. You know, we uh, we we have a lot of ground to cover. I've I've missed talking to you about uh, the various goings on with our our two favorite programs. Well, there's no excuse. We've had uh, a lot going on with our families, with Christmas, with holidays, with sickness, and all kinds of things in between. But uh, I. Every day I'm having like withdrawals, trying to get back to this podcast to talk uh, one of my favorite things in all the world, which is uh, Husky football and uh, how that relates to the Ducks and vice versa. Um, so it's good to be back with you. And uh, we're, we're going to have a, a great time kind of breaking down this past season for both teams. So, you know, for the benefit of our listeners what we kind of have decided to do is instead of trying to squeeze in everything that's happened over the last month from the, the, the end of the season, recruiting the bowl game, the transfer portal, all the comings and goings of players coming in and out of the program. Um, we're going to break it down over the next few weeks. And so to tonight we're going to talk about uh, a season review and then um, next week, we're gonna we're gonna do an episode on roster reformation, and uh, we'll talk about you know all the players that have left our programs from the transfer portal, guys that are graduating, guys that are staying, new recruits, prospective transfer portal additions. We'll get into all that next year and what that looks like going looking ahead to the 2023 season. And uh, and then um, our the week after that, we're we're gonna do a, a way too soon episode where we really try to break down what we think twenty twenty three might look like. And Mark, with that in mind, let's go ahead and and talk about one of the big news items for both the dogs and the ducks, which is that John Canzano reported today that uh, there's a date now for the the Husky uh, Oregon game. Yeah, look, I mean, Canzano basically uh, like revealed the schedule without revealing the schedule. I think the schedule is is supposed to come out Wednesday morning at ten a.m. But Canzano basically, like, I I know I think the dates for like now half of Oregon's schedule based on yeah. what Canzano reported out. I know that their first conference game is against Colorado. I know they're paying the playing the Beavers on Black Friday. They're playing you know, uh, what is it? USC on November 11th. Um, but the biggest one, uh, for the two of us is October 14th. It appears is the date at which, uh, the university of Oregon will head up to Seattle and attempt to gain their revenge over, uh, 
this this last outcome at Autzen Stadium. So uh, already circling that date on my calendar. Yeah. So you know, October fourteenth. That's that's kind of right in the middle of the season. Uh, both teams that will probably be two three weeks into the Pac-12 slate. Do you like that timing as you think about you know those two teams coming you know coming against each other? You know, that's the timing that it was those two years back to back when um, when during the Cristobal and Peter scenarios, when both teams were ranked in the top 25, uh, that was the J Justin Herbert was involved in both those games for Oregon. Um, and it was a pretty good timing because uh, like, I think there's a much higher chance that like both teams say maybe are undefeated or both teams are like ranked in the top 10 or something mm -hmm. at that point in the year, just based on what we know of the scheduling. We know that uh, later in November, the Huskies are going to play. What is it like USC, Utah and the Beavers and the Cougars all in like the last month of the season, it looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that for the Ducks, it, it, we know at least that they're going to play USC and Oregon state in the month of November. I, I don't know when the Utah game is going to get slotted in there. Uh, but so then if you, you know, if you start playing the schedule out, it's like, you know, the Huskies have a, a game at Michigan state, which should be a bigger challenge than the Michigan state game was this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, Oregon's got Texas tech who, you know, might be a kind of a team on the rise. Like, so it, it's not that, that uh, the first half a dozen games or so are just going to be a walkover, no. uh, but it's easier to kind of forecast like two, six and O teams than two, 10 and O teams. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, and so from that perspective, like it could have uh, a little more of an exciting feel, although it's hard to beat like the late November stakes that you know you sometimes get with when a game uh, is later in the year. Well, you know, I would think if I'm an Oregon Duck fan, I'm ecstatic about this October game because, you know, as we talked about in a previous episode, where I, you know, posed my, uh, you know, my term, quacking it, uh, the Oregon Ducks the last three years in November and December have not been nearly as impressive as they have been in the month of October. So if I'm, if I'm an Oregon Duck fan, I would much rather play the Huskies in October than I would in uh, November based on the last three years of recent history. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that translates into, into 2023, but Let's get into some dog and duck news. Warren, I've just got to say that. I, I mean, part of me doesn't want to slow you down when you go in this direction because we've got eight more months of this, and I kind of want to just add the fuel to the fire. But I really do believe that every time you bring up quacking it, you are begging the football gods to give the Huskies like three losses in their last four games <laughs> in the month of November, especially what we know of this November yes. schedule especially this year and so i'm just i'm just know that i'm filing this away okay. every time it comes out we're, we're gonna have to come back and, and revisit it in late november well hey kudos to the ducks we will talk about this uh you know later in the show especially but uh you know they they had an, an opportunity to really quack it 
at the uh, end of their bowl game, but they didn't do it. They came out with a W. Um, so they were able to salvage um, the the last month or so of the season with a win against UNC. But yeah, let's let's talk a little bit of dog uh, and duck news. So the dogs, of course, they finished the season 11 and 2, 27 20 win over former Husky coach Steve Sarkeesian and the Texas Longhorns in the Alamo Bowl. Uh, and you know, as one uh, national news writer put it on Twitter uh, a, a day after the Huskies signed uh, star running back Dylan Johnson from um, Mississippi. Was it Mississippi State? Yeah. Um, was that Mike Leach's former school? Yes. Yeah, Mississippi State. Yeah. So Dylan Johnson from Mississippi State from the transfer portal. He, he put it this way. Everything is coming up Huskies right now. And it definitely has felt that way for the most part um, since this season has begun 11 and two um, you know, a lot of positive momentum, a lot of excitement around the program uh, and getting, you know, some great players in the portal, getting some great players back. Um, and uh, we'll get more into that, you know, that next week in terms of the, the roster reformation but definitely the big news item, one of two big news stories you could say over the last week is Roma Dunze, star wide receiver, first team all Pac-12 wide receiver, uh, has announced that he is coming back. And Mark, that means we have eight NFL eligible players who have all decided to come back and play another year of college football with the university of washington huskies and mark i don't know if i could ever think of a time when that has happened not only with the washington huskies but i can't think of another football program in recent memory that has had that kind of a response from guys that are being graded as second third fourth round draft picks saying hey i'm coming back and i have a theory you know, I, I I think there's there's a couple factors in this, but part of it leads me to actually admit that I was wrong about something, and that oh, you, yeah no. yeah enjoy this. No you may have been right about something, and you may you may be able to guess what it is, but I think it is, it's this whole deal with a name, image, and likeness, where we're seeing some really high quality players come back for another year of college football because one, they love college football. They yeah. love their team. They want to you know, improve their stock in the draft for in the next year, but the NIL opportunity is making it at least lucrative enough that it makes sense for them to come back for another year to play college football. And so for that, Mark, I, I would say I was wrong about the NIL, that there, there is some, some good redeeming qualities to it. And I think that this is one of them. Proven players who have contributed to their program, guys like Michael Penix Jr., guys like Bo Nix, that can come back and play another year of college football, make some money in the process, and uh, and and really leave a lasting mark for their program. So 
with that, I'm I'm ecstatic about about that news. I I expected eventually you would come around, Warren. I just didn't see it happening this quickly. I thought it would take a few years to kind of wear you down on this, but uh, I'm I'm glad to see you amend your position. Uh, I do think you know this is an interesting thing. I was listening to another college football podcast this morning uh, of Stuart Mandel and Bruce Feldman on the Athletic, and they were talking about how the lack of regulation mm-hmm. has led to all kinds of issues with all kinds of schools. And there's so many schools that the way they're running their NIL is so chaotic and there's numbers being thrown around and there's deals being brokered or broken. And it's just kind of a chaotic mess. And then Stuart Mandel said something interesting. He said, now there's some schools that really seem, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, there's some schools that really seem to have their act together on this. And then he specifically referenced, first he referenced Oregon and Division Street, and he mentioned that the former Nike executives that are running Oregon's NIL department. And then he said, Washington also, those were the first two schools that he mentioned of basically like, they've figured out how to do this in a way that is well run. And, And I'm reading into it a little bit, but essentially he was kind of saying, college football and college sports in general need to figure out some way to kind of take it from these two schools that are kind of taking the right approach. Hmm. I don't know exactly what led him to say that. I don't know the ins and outs of how these things work at any school, much less specifically at at Oregon and Washington. But I just thought it was interesting to know, like a guy who is plugged in as much as any college football writer in the country, Hmm. the first two schools that he mentioned were Oregon and Washington with division street and montlake futures and basically saying that they're they're figuring out how to navigate this this changing landscape you know in in a respectable way uh, i thought that was interesting no that is, that is interesting and of course as a result perhaps we are seeing something that we would never have seen years before where you know juniors and third year sophomores are saying you know what i could go to the nfl and get drafted in the third or fourth round or i could come back make some money help my team you know win the pac-12 compete for a national championship and potentially earn a first or second round you know draft grade as a result of this additional year so you know just mark really quickly those eight returning uh, players, significant players, Michael Penix Jr., quarterback, Braylon Trice finished with over 10 sacks this season, ZTF, once considered to be a a surefire first-round draft pick, projected starter next year at at the other edge, Tuli Latula Gasanoa, defensive tackle, uh, all-conference player, Troy Fiotano, left tackle, all-conference player, Jalen McMillan, wide receiver, essentially had the exact same stats as Roma Roma Dunze, honorable mention, wide receiver for the Pac-12. Eddie Ulifoscio, uh, for two years, was the highest-graded linebacker by PFF, came back from an injury to play the last couple games of this past season, presumably comes into next season healthy at middle linebacker. And then Roma Dunze, who... Um, you know, we'll 
be a, certainly a leading candidate for the Boletnikov Award next season after being snubbed this past season. So all of that is great news. Like I mentioned, everything's coming up, Huskies, except for one other story that just came up over the last few days. And, and of course, you know what this is, Mark. You, uh, you texted me as soon as you saw the news. But uh, the legacy, the son of a Husky legend, the nephew of a Husky legend, Sam Heward, the five-star quarterback, has entered the transfer portal. And uh, he'll be looking for an opportunity to play college football somewhere else next year. And uh, that leaves the Huskies now with two uh, scholarship quarterbacks on this roster right now. Yeah, I mean, huge, huge news and and kind of combined with the new, I, I know we're, next week we're going to get into the whole roster construction thing, but I mean, the fact that, you know, Washington was very early in on this Lincoln Kine, Kineholz, am I pronouncing that right? The, yep. you know, the highly touted quarterback, he flips at the last minute to Ohio State, uh, makes some comments publicly where he basically <laughs> implies that he would have gotten paid more money to go to Washington, but he didn't think he'd get the same development opportunities as he did at Ohio State. Love that, Warren. We're going to come back to that in a big way in future episodes, I'm sure. You but have then, to you have to wonder, though, with that, like, like, is that the reason why Stuart Mandel made the comment that he did? Yeah, like, because, like, like, what on earth? Like, how in the world could UW be more, you know, competitive in nil than ohio state yeah I, well, and one of the things that i've been hearing this is kind of a tangent now but is that the 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 top tier schools the ohio states the georgias the alabama are not making nearly as big a push in the nil waters because right now they can market we're going to get you ready for the actual nfl we're going to compete for actual national titles and so for them, for and and I would say it's those three in particular mm-hmm. that don't need and and maybe Clemson just because Dabo kind of has his own framework yeah. for how he wants to run a program. Um, but those three or four schools are able to kind of offer something else and for that something to be as compelling as you know a, a, a some sort of endorsement contract. Um, so there may be something to that. There may be something to Ohio State is just kind of saying, hey, we're Ohio State. We don't have to do that. Like, you can either come here and play in the NFL and get drafted in the first round and compete for a national title, or you can, you know, go capitalize on your, your name, image, and likeness. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. Um, but to go back to the point that I was making, Washington loses him at the last minute. They turn around and they try to get Sam Levitt yeah. from West Lynn High School in Oregon, who interestingly, Oregon did not make a late push after. Uh, Levitt ends up committing to Michigan State, which was a bizarre turn of events uh, for this West Coast kid to head out to East Lansing. And so that left Washington empty-handed on the recruiting cycle. They weren't able to grab a late a late decommitment from someone else the way Oregon was. So uh, then they lose Heward in the offseason. So now you would think that they're going to try to pull in somebody, maybe a junior college transfer, maybe a, a, a transfer in the spring. Like you would think they're going to they're going to try to at least get a third scholarship quarterback at some point in time. They're, but they don't. It, it would be a total 
uh, you know, throw the dice to try to go into the season with two scholarship quarterbacks. So I think absolutely they're going to go hard after a, a quarterback, whether it's through the transfer portal, JC, or a high school quarterback. And that leads to, you know, the last tidbit of news for, for dog news right now. And that is that the Huskies appear to potentially be a suitor for star, uh, highly prized quarterback, Jaden Rashada, who is a West Coast kid, but uh, and actually had Oregon in his list of final candidates, but had had committed to Miami, then flipped to the University of Florida. And the rumor is that the number 13 million was being tossed around as the the amount that that University of Florida was committing to bring this kid in, whether yeah. that was guaranteed over one year, over four years, dependent on him starting. That information is totally unknown, and maybe the entire thing is a farce. But, um, you know, there is some reporting that's coming out even tonight that the Huskies would be a potential landing spot for Jaden Rashada uh, for a couple reasons. One, because as you mentioned, Washington is one of the only programs that didn't land a quarterback in the 2023 recruiting class because of the late flip by Kineholtz. In addition, Jaden Rashada's star wide receiver, Rashid Williams, is already a commit to the University of Washington. He's going to be here in the fall, and there may be enough of a connection because of that, that if the the NIL is pleasing, whatever that is, whether that's $50,000 or $5 million, we can only speculate, but there is a, a chance that the Huskies could sign this highly rated QB um, really just by whiffing on all these other opportunities and being the last man standing. Yeah. And well, it's funny because the, the Stuart Mandel comments that I referenced earlier were, were in the context of a conversation about Jaden Rashada (laughs) and comparing the NIL departments at Oregon and Washington to the departments at Miami and Florida and how they had gotten roped into these extended negotiations with Rashada's extended family that had kind of turned into a nightmare and how maybe a school might want to steer clear from this family and what they were asking for. Uh, So I don't, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure if he signed with the Huskies, there's a part of me that would be like, Oh, great. You know, here's the next star quarterback in your midst. Um, But at the same time, it might be one of those guys that is more trouble than he's worth. Uh, Arizona State also don't don't count them out, you know, because oh. when he was considering Oregon, it was Kenny Dillingham that was the one who was heavily recruiting him. Yeah. And Dillingham also a gifted offensive mind. So that could be another, um, you know, West Coast school that that makes a run at him. Right. I mean, there's there are three West Coast schools that were listed as potential options. Arizona State, Cal, simply because they've got no quarterback right now. And, and proximity to his hometown. And yeah. proximity to hometown. And then the University of Washington, because of their, you know, they Washington did not recruit a quarterback in 2023 
or 2022. So there is a major opening for a guy like him to come in and to really truly believe that after this year with Michael Penix, he would be the guy. Uh, I mean, like there's, there's a legitimate argument that he, he could, you know, step into that role. But of course, what do we both know about these five-star quarterbacks? I mean, it doesn't mean that when you get to college and you you put on the pads that you can really deliver. I mean, you know, Sam Heward, Ty Thompson, what have we seen from these guys right. you know, that would lead us to go, oh, okay, this guy's worth $13 million or, right. you know, this guy's the future franchise for either one of our programs. So that's that in some ways the transfer portal is more of a security blanket for programs to be able to say, Hey, we've seen this guy produce. He's going to, he's going to come in and, and, you know, keep doing what he's already been doing as opposed to just a guy that, you know, was an incredible high school player two or three years removed. Yeah. I think the study that I saw was essentially, if you got a five-star quarterback, you've got a one out of three chance that he's going to be really special. You know, and so yeah. you you hear five star and you think we're getting a Michael Penix or a Bo Nix type, you know, a guy that had the type of season that those two guys had. But that's actually about one out of three five stars end up putting up some kind of a season on that. Sure. Caliber, you know, being and like we yeah, we we saw, you know, we saw Trevor Lawrence and we saw Justin Fields. We saw Kyler Murray, you know. And it was easy to kind of think, okay, like everybody's getting these five-star quarterbacks that are like stepping onto campus and becoming stars almost on day one. And I think it kind of created a false, you know, expectation of what it means to be a five-star quarterback, you know? And so, you know, we'll see whether we get Rashada or not. To me, it's, there's still going to be a lot of, waiting and seeing competition but it would be certainly an interesting turn of events and like you said the speculation would have to run rampant i mean mark just imagine after the kind holes comment and what we know about rashada if rashada were to commit to the university of washington the speculation would just be outrageous right right <laughs> so you know we'll see yeah i'm i'm just just for context for our listeners i'm looking at a list this was going into last season of current five-star quarterbacks okay I, there's a dozen guys on the list i may not even read the whole list but let me let me just give you a sampling and you tell me if this guy has lived up to it jt daniels three different schools that he started at usc georgia west virginia he's now moving on to a fourth school uh spencer rattler transferred from oklahoma to south carolina now you know he he's played some really good games but he's also had some some you know some real bad games too it hit and miss to say the least yes uh, but you Bo can Nicks. see the talent there yeah bonix okay bonix is on this list but you would not have put him on the uh on the on the hit list prior to this last season, certainly not during his time at Auburn. He seemed like an underachiever. Um, 
uh, Bryce Young obviously won a Heisman Trophy. DJU, DJ Ugalele, Clemson is now at Oregon State because he didn't pan out at Clemson, right? Yeah, but again, you know, it's like, I mean, the first time DJ, you know, stood on the field for Clemson, he threw for like 400 yards against Notre Dame, you know? It's like, it's obvious that the talent's there, but there's some, there's, you know, this past year or so, something just wasn't right. You've also got Caleb Williams on this list who won a Heisman. You've got Sam Heward on this list who we just mentioned. You've got multiple. You've got JJ McCarthy who took Michigan to a playoff. Yeah, and multiple quarterbacks that I've never heard of. <laughs> so um, it's you know it's all over the map. I mean, you you might get a Heisman Trophy winner. You might get a guy that four years later nobody remembers his name. So. All right, so let's talk a little duck news. What's happening uh, to uh, with all the feathered friends in in the South? Well, Warren, we've got we got a few pieces of of news uh, to share. First of all, you know you you mentioned um, some big names for Washington opting to come back. Uh, the most recent news on that front for Oregon is a couple of their defensive linemen, maybe their two best defensive linemen of this past year, Casey Rogers, uh, interior lineman. And then Brandon Dorless, uh, defensive end, both opted to come back for one more season. Uh, and both little little surprising. I think both those guys walked in the senior day um, festivities, and you know have the opportunity to to move on. And both of them came back. So uh, there's some excitement around there, obviously, you know, and we're going to get into this a lot more next week with our discussion about kind of the roster construction, but a lot of excitement at Oregon about the top 10 recruiting class that Dan Lanning landed uh, with some late flips from, from other major schools. A lot of work being done in the transfer portal, both outcoming and incoming as it stands right now, Oregon has had 21 players transfer out uh, nine players transfer in, and I would say that the expectation around the nine players coming in and for their contributions much outweighs the expectations attached to the to the players transferring out. Um, they're very much they're they're losing uh, guys who have not been playing a lot, and they're getting guys that are expected to be playing a lot. So, um, Mark, on 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 that com- particular component, just curious, what you think? If you were to take the recruiting rankings of the 21 guys that are that are leaving the program and you were to drop that recruiting score into this year's recruiting class, how high do you think the recruiting class of players leaving Oregon would be? Do you know the answer? I don't know the answer. I oh. haven't I mean, I don't even know the algorithm for calculating that that number. But you're talking about, I mean, almost, I would guess just based on scrolling through, I would guess that like 16 of those 21 players were either four or five stars coming out of high school. Yeah. That's like, to me, 21 players of that caliber, that's a top 10 recruiting class that's leaving your program. Yeah, or at least top top twelve. Top, I mean, that that's kind of about where where the class average is over the last four years. So I would guess you know it's it's consistent with that. Um, one thing that is worth noting is that the class of twenty twenty one 
which I think we could just refer to as the COVID class. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a that was ranked as a top. That I think that was ranked the sixth best class in the country when when Mario Cristobal mm-hmm. signed it. Mm-hmm. And recruiting experts all over kind of flagged that particular year's rankings and said, "Take these rankings with a grain of salt, especially any players on the West Coast." Yeah many of whom didn't play a senior year in high school or they played an abbreviated season in, mm-hmm. in January and February, or, I mean, there yeah. was so much that was just weird about that final season that everybody said the evaluation windows and, you know, coaches couldn't go and visit players in person. Like there was so much about recruiting during that particular time. And I think the last number that I saw was of the 21 players Oregon signed that year, 13 are no longer with the program. And I see that more as a sign of there was some misevaluation there that these, these guys probably weren't quite up to the standard that, um, you know, that, that the coaching staff thought. And so now they're, they're looking for opportunities to play and they're not transferring of, of all of the, you know, 20 some players that Oregon has lost. There are two guys that transferred to, to programs of, of a similar caliber to Oregon. There's uh, Mm a, one guy that transferred to LSU, one guy transferred to Tennessee. The rest of them, I would say, are are either a lower tier power five or a you know a group of five school or or even some to an FCS school. So um yeah, I I mean we we'll we'll get into this more, but it, it yeah. is interesting that Dan Lanning essentially is gonna go into next year with three quarters of the roster being guys that he has brought in, which is pretty crazy for your second season. And they're Mm going to have about 40 freshmen or redshirt freshmen of their 85 scholarship players. So they're going to be experienced at some key positions, but they're also going to be very, very young Mm. as a whole in in terms of their depth. And that's going to make, I would think for, you know, an interesting kind of course of action for how the coaching staff develops those younger players while also really competing for some big stuff because they've got, they've got Bo Nix coming back and they've got Bucky Irving coming back and they've got Troy Franklin coming yeah. back. So, so it's, it's going to be a, a, a fascinating kind of uh, mix of team chemistry on, on that regard. Mm, yeah. uh, I guess w- one other piece of news that that is not related to to recruiting or or bringing in players or anything, uh, bringing guys back, and that is just a shout out here. Uh, LaMichael James uh, was elected hmm. to the College Football Hall of Fame and well well deserved. Oh, that's LaMichael great. James. I I just wanted to point out uh, he is the first Oregon player of my lifetime elected to the College Football Hall of Fame. Joey Harrington was really? not elected. Um, Haloti Nada was not elected. Uh, Marcus Mariota probably will be elected one day, um, you would think. But Michael James, um, first Oregon player elected. I think you could make the argument that he is on the Mount Rushmore of Oregon football players. I think there's even an argument, Warren, that he's on the Mount Rushmore of like running backs in the Pac-12, especially if you like limit the number of USC running backs could be on that Mount Rushmore. <laughs> right. USC, has, USC has five running backs right. uh, that have won the Heisman Trophy. Yeah. I think LaMichael James has more career rushing yards than four of those five. Right. 
Michael James only played three years at Oregon, whereas almost all of those USC guys um, played four years. So really, okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, like Michael James in three years has more rushing yards and more yards from scrimmage than Reggie Bush in three years at USC. Uh, Yeah, most people would not guess that. Yeah, that's true. Although, I mean, Reggie Bush was so spectacular not and that's not to take away with from the michael james but reggie bush had lindale white and the matt you know liner offense as well that you know that was that was and also such a, return, return kicks yeah it was such a, a balanced offense that you know reggie bush in many ways was kind of like mr outside and lindale white was mr inside um so i like i wouldn't i would never judge reggie bush's career based on his yardage numbers it's more like you had to see reggie bush play to know how great he was but point point well taken point well taken i'm i'm not um i'm not trying to say that lamichael james necessarily is is better than reggie bush but when i was looking at the career numbers yeah i was struck that uh yeah, the only three players ahead of LaMichael James, Pac-12 players in career rushing yards, Charles White of USC, Royce Freeman at Oregon, Miles Gaskin at Washington, all were four-year players. Yeah. LaMichael James in three years ran for over 5,000 yards in yeah. three years. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it, it's interesting you brought up Miles Gaskin because that, you know, that was in my mind as well because there's kind of this question of like, how do you define the greatest quarterback of a team or of the Pac-12? Is yeah. it based on a cumulative career or is it based on what you saw him do on the field? Is right. it based on one dominant season? Because almost every Husky fan will say, if you were to say who was the greatest quarterback to ever run on the football field at the University of Washington, it would be Corey Dillon. I mean, he was just absolutely sure. yeah. dominant, but he only played one year. He was really only on campus for one semester. Yeah. Um, so like, would I personally say that I think Corey Dillon is the greatest quarterback in history or running, excuse me, running back in the history of university of Washington. I wouldn't say that other people have. Right. But I think there's a great argument for miles Gaskin because he did it for four years, four years starter, thousand yards per season. And, you know, you look at what he did in the biggest games of his career and he was always money. Yeah. Um, so like I would take that guy over one year of Corey Dillon any day, but that's just me. So I, I can appreciate the LaMichael James argument that you're making. Yeah, and I mean, regardless of whether you put where you put him on that, you know, um, the number of Doak Walker winners in the, uh, I mean, well, the first Doak Walker winner was our guy Greg Lewis, and yes. so since you know that was 1990, and so in that run, I think we're talking about Greg Lewis, Reggie Bush, Toby Gearhart of Stanford, uh, Bryce Love of Stanford. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think Christian McCaffrey won it, which is ridiculous because he was arguably better than either of those two. Um, Not arguably, objectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. objectively better. Um, And then LaMichael James. Like, I mean, there's really only a handful of of Pac-12 running backs that we're even kind of 
talking about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that, in that category. And um, to run for 1500 yards as a freshman, 1700 yards as a sophomore, 1800 yards as a junior played in a national title game, played in multiple Rose bowls and uh, did get kind of slowed down by the, by the sec teams that they played usually because mm-hmm. Oregon's offensive mm-hmm. line didn't stack up. But I mean, he ran for, he ran for 257 yards against the top 10 Stanford team, ran for 239 yards against the top 10 USC team that was coached by Pete Carroll. Um, so, I mean, just had some, had some really fabulous, um, fabulous moments, scored a ton of touchdowns. And uh, so well, well-deserved for Michael James to, uh, to get that hall of fame invite. I love it. That's great. Well, let's, let's get into our season review. So Mark back way, way in the early preseason days of uh, August, we went through game by game and we made our preseason predictions. I predicted the Huskies would finish the season eight and four. You predicted the Huskies would finish seven and five. Um, And then you predicted the Ducks would finish nine and three. And uh, I predicted the Ducks would finish eight and four. So we, we both, underestimated both of our teams although um we weren't we really weren't factoring in uh the bowl games but uh more or less both teams exceeded our expect expectations this year so mark before we we you know get into the kind of the review of the season i'm wondering like going into the season what you know what were you most wrong about as you think, as you think about either, either one of these teams, like that you just did not really, you know, perceive properly. Yeah. I think going into the season, I, I thought Oregon could have maybe the best defense in the PAC 12. And I thought their offense was going to be pretty shaky with Bo Nix as a quarterback. And I was wrong on both fronts (laughs) (laughs) that they were very much, I mean, they were an offensive juggernaut for most of the season and their defense, I would say really struggled in several big moments of the season. You know Um, I think they're that they're, I mean, we can, we'll break down Oregon's defense in a little bit. Cause I actually think there's a way to, to be more optimistic about how they finish the season, but, mm-hmm. um, but certainly in the Georgia game and in the Washington game, especially the defense got severely exposed in a way that I, I was much more high on the defense as being, being a difference maker than they showed in those games. Um, and the offense just completely over exceeded my expectations. Uh, Bo Nix, especially, but, but, Kenny Dillingham's role as a play caller. I was, I was pretty low on the Dillingham hire, if you remember. So uh, that whole side of the ball, I was much more enthusiastic about it as the season went on. How, what, what would you say for, for your own sense of Washington? What were you, what were you uh, wrong about? Well, I think I was, I, I believe that the Husky offense was going to be better because how could it be worse? Um, than the year before under John Donovan, which sure. just as a reminder, John Donovan was guiding Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers this year as a offensive consultant. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the, the John Donovan, you know, influence is just 
absolutely poison. So I, I, I don't know. What would be the ultimate flex move is if Andy Reid brought in John Donovan as a, as an offensive analyst, just to say like, <laughs> nothing can slow us down. Like we're, we're going to bring in John Donovan and we're still going to lead the league in points. Like, well, they, they bring in John Donovan and then all of a sudden it just comes to a grinding halt. So, <laughs> um, and everybody's like, what has happened to Patrick Mahomes? And yeah. yeah, he's become Kelsey, a game manager. Kelsey can't catch the the ball. You know, they're just running right up the gut for no yards. Uh, but yeah, so um, I expected them to be better, but there's no way that we could have predicted that uh, Michael Penix would have arguably the greatest quarterback season in the history of the University of Washington. Uh, we knew that these receivers were talented, but I don't think we would have ever dreamt that we would have two 1,000-yard receivers. Um, we thought that the offensive line was better than, than they had shown in 2021, but we would never have predicted that they would grade out to be a top five offensive line in the country. So uh, it's not so much that I was dead wrong as I just was completely, you know, uh, unable to see how a team could make the kind of drastic Im Im uh, improvement that it did. And they did it. They started on day one. I mean, really, when you look at, when you look at this season, uh, the Huskies start off the season 4-0. Uh, they beat Kent State handily, 45-20. Portland State, 52-6. Michigan State was the, the first seemingly test of this program. And uh, Husky Stadium was rocking that day. And then they put up 40 against Stanford. And, you know, that 45-20 that to 20 win against, against Kent State uh, may not be that impressive to the casual observer but going back and realizing that we lost to montana right right open the season last year and could not do anything against that team it was enough of an impression that we very clearly were able to say okay something is different about this program now we yes. also saw that something was different about this defense and that clearly was the story of the season for this team was there was one glaring weak spot, and that was the back seven of the defense, the the safeties, the, the cornerbacks, and the inside linebackers. They were exposed by uh, Connor Schley, who's now at UCLA, and Dante Cephas, who also went to a big-time program, I'm drawing right. a blank on who it was right now, but two very good players that were playing for a, a, a high octane offense at as Kent State proved to be. But um, certainly, we knew that there was something different about this team than what we had seen last year. Yeah, I think for for an outsider who kind of reveled in the Montana, you know, result of the previous season. I remember watching just a little bit of that Kent state game and just going, okay, this, they have their act together now. Like, you know, the, the, a lot of those issues have kind of been undone. And so, um, yeah, it didn't take long. And, and, the, and then the, the Michigan state game, it's easy to 
kind of look past that now because Michigan State kind of ended up underachieving. I think they finished five and seven. They didn't go to a bowl game. They they kind of had a miserable year in the Big Ten. But they came into that game. They had played well their first couple games. Mm-hmm. They had a ranking, you know, what went in the top 15, somewhere in there. Yep. And that felt like a really big test. Right. A test that that both of us going into the year thought the Huskies were going to fail. You ended up talking yourself into it the week of the game, which made sense, you know, after seeing the way Washington started the season. But that felt like a really, really big test at the time. And for them to win that game so emphatically mm-hmm. just kind of signaled that the a, a new regime was in town and they were going to be judged by a different standard. Right. I mean, and, and you know, we both – in the preseason predicted that to be a loss for the Huskies. Rightly so. Michigan State was coming off of a breakthrough year uh, under Mel Tucker with Ken Walker, now the Seattle Seahawks uh, star rookie player. But those first three games that Michigan State had played going into the Husky game, they had two running backs that were both averaging around 100 yards per game. So... There was plenty of reason to think, oh, wow, you know, this team's going to just run the ball down our throat. And uh, similar to, you know, the the Huskies' defensive performance against Texas at the end of the season, they were able to slow down that running game. And so yeah. that that provided, you know, the opportunity for the offense to really take advantage and, and build a, a strong lead and then, you know, some sloppy play and you know backups kind of made the the score closer at the end. Yeah, I think the uh, my uh, my take as an Oregon fan is I'm I'm just hoping that that win was so emphatic that when Washington flies across halfway across the country and goes to Michigan right. this year that they'll let their guard down a little bit because they were so dominant. Um, okay. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that Michigan State's just going to be, you know, ready to run through a brick wall. But, you yeah. know, let's let's talk about the first, uh, you know, quarter or so of the the floor, the Oregon season. So, obviously, nobody was truly expecting Oregon to beat Georgia, especially based on where they were playing in Atlanta. Um, but... Uh, that being said, the 49 to three beatdown was an embarrassing start, but then they recovered with a big win against Eastern Washington, BYU. And then really, I think what could have been maybe the most pivotal pivotal game of the season, that Washington State comeback. So how, how do you kind of, you know, and, and you picked a loss in that game. They managed to win. So you had predicted they would start the season off two and two. I had predicted they would lose to BYU and beat Washington State. So I had also predicted a two and two start. Um, so how are you feeling about this team at three and one? Well, so jumping back into it at the BYU game, that was a big statement to me because mm-hmm. BYU came in with a similar record to Michigan State. They had just beaten Baylor the week before. Uh, so there was some sense in which, hey, this is they're they're playing a top twenty team. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can they come out with a different energy than they did against Georgia? And they jumped all over BYU. I think it was thirty eight to seven, yeah. you know, midway through the third quarter when they kind of started to pull off pull off the dogs. 
so that was a little bit of like a breath of fresh air for Oregon fans to say, okay, like, cause the Georgia game felt so similar to how things finished last season with those blowout losses that it was kind of like, Oh, here we go again. And I think to have them come out at home and dominate what at the time seemed like a, a pretty good BYU team, uh, that that felt reassuring. I think what what happened with the Washington State game, uh, as maddening as it was in the moment, because they were they trailed most of that game, uh, they had to come back late just to pull out the win. But what that did for me is that kind of told me uh, that Bo Nix was a real guy. Uh, because there was a point in that game where they were down by 13 and it was like, they've got to score. They've got to get the ball back. They've got to score. They have no margin for error in these next five minutes. Like that's exactly what they have to do. And he did it. You know, he led them down two two long drives when they absolutely had to have it. And uh, that was after having thrown a pick six earlier in that game and, you know, not playing his best in the first half. And I think for Oregon fans as a whole, those back-to-back games of the BYU, the dominant performance against BYU, and then the comeback on the road in Pullman felt like an environment where they could have folded. That that kind of breathed some life into this team and, and sent Oregon into October, you know, look looking like a team that that could make a run at uh at the Pac-12. I mean, that I think that's kind of how we all felt coming out of that first month. Yeah, and it, you know, it's interesting because I think we we've, we've kind of joked about how the Washington Athletic Department and Marketing Department waited until the season was over to start promoting Michael Penix Jr. as a Heisman candidate. But yeah. honestly, you know, if you were to go back and look, history would kind of tell you that after starting four and zero and putting up the stats that he did. There was some Michael Penix for Heisman shatter that was beginning to arise. And like you said, we're just we're just trying to we're just starting to figure out that Bo Nix may be better than than anticipated. But Michael yeah. Penix seemed like he was on his way to to superstardom. And then we go to, on the road. And you know, the next couple of weeks, we get decimated by UCLA. We pull out, pull back in the end to make it, you know, reasonable close, lose uh, forty to thirty-two. But uh, there was some major flaws in the defense that were exposed, and Michael Penix did not have one of his better games, uh, especially in the second quarter against UCLA. And then the following week, we lose a stinker in the desert to a really bad Arizona State team that um had lost had fired their 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 head coach their starting quarterback gets injured in the first quarter their backup quarterback who was a one-time walk-on quarterback comes in and looks like joe freaking montana against this washington defense and the huskies lose a really disappointing game 45 to 38 and i think at that point most fans, even the most optimistic Husky fans, had completely stopped talking about Michael Penix for Heisman. In fact, Mark, I've I've been waiting to show this to you, but um, for Christmas, I got a little stocking stuffer. I got a couple packets of the Washington Husky 
uh, football trading cards. And I know that uh, we're on a podcast, so people can't hear this, but I'm holding up the package of these football trading cards. And I think there's about 10 cards that come in each pack. And Mark, uh, you will not believe this, but in both packs, I got, this is, this is amazing. I got two Sean Toomey Stout trading cards. Now, Mark, the significance of this is this was the guy who was playing in that Arizona State game who did not even have his name on his jersey at that time. That's how bad off they were for defensive backs at that game. And um, definitely at that point, you know, we, we've gone from 4-0 to 4-2. and and we're talking about this is going to be basketball on grass, and we're just going to have to outscore every team that we we play from here on out. Um, the Arizona State, the Arizona game proved that out, but it was there was no way that we were thinking about eleven and two or Heisman, you know, talk for Penix at all at that point. Yeah, as as I remember, it was you were just kind of praying to get to the bye week. That's what it felt like. Is is it's, yeah. we got Arizona and California. Please, please don't lose again. Let's get to the bye week. Try to get healthy, and see if we can finish the season on a better note. Um, and you know, you've you've referenced the lack of the lack of the name on the jersey a few times. Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, this was a road game. You take less guys on the road than you take at home. Generally, you're only taking guys on the road with the expectation that they're going to get in the game. So every time I hear this, it just, to me, it sounds more like a failing of the equipment staff than like a lack of, of depth or something. It's like the guy, he was on the, he was on the the plane, like somebody on the, the equipment staff should have had a Jersey with his name ready for him. Like, come on, come on, university of Washington. (laughs) Hey, you know, that, 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 that may be the case, but Let's be honest, if you are six games into the season and you do not have your name on the back of the jersey, it means that nobody is expecting for you to play. Yeah. Um, And that's how bad things got, particularly in that game. Uh, You know, and, and the coaches actually talked about that. I've heard them in subsequent interviews at the end of the season and they said, honestly, in our, you know, whatever year career, we've never seen one position group get attacked by that injury bug like we saw with the defensive backfield this year. And as a result, and we'll talk about this next next week, but the Huskies went out and they're bringing in something like seven defensive backs next season to compete for those starting positions. So, um you know, it just to me, in retrospect, now it's more of a joke than it is anything else. But it was it was dire, dire for uh, a few games there for the Huskies. Yeah, yeah, um, dire for the Huskies. And meanwhile, that kind of coincided with with the Ducks starting to take flight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you had a blowout win over Stanford, a blowout win over Arizona. They were all kind of these were games where. Oregon got out to a big lead and then would give up some garbage time points that made the score seem a little less, you know, um, 
dramatic, but but convincing wins, and then a huge top ten matchup with an undefeated UCLA at the time. Um, UCLA, remember, after beating the Huskies the very next week, they beat Utah, and really kind of stamped themselves as a team to watch that potentially might be able to win the whole the whole Pac-12. And uh, Chip Kelly coming back to Autzen Stadium, game day in town. That was there was a lot of energy around that. And Oregon played probably their best game start to finish, both sides of the ball of the season. They won forty-five to thirty. Uh, the defense really came through against DTR, held held mm-hmm. UCLA uh, to field goals on several possessions, intercepted him a couple times on key plays, and um, and then Oregon's offense was pretty much perfect. I mean, I think they scored six touchdowns and a field goal on their first seven drives of the game. And uh, Dan Lanning, of course, um, kind of that was his like perfect game as as a decision maker going for it on fourth down in his own end multiple times, calling for the surprise on sidekick. Yeah. All of the things that that he took heat for against the Huskies and the Beavers later in the year. Yeah. Those all worked out to perfection against Chip Kelly. We people were sending texts basically like Dan Lanning is pulling a Chip Kelly on Chip Kelly. Yeah, was kind of the the running joke, and you know it all co- coincided with. I mean, Oregon came out of that game, and I think the the wide assumption was Oregon is going to play in the Pac-12 title game. You know, probably right. against USC was kind of the assumption at that point. And they kept winning. They blew out Cal. They blew out Colorado and and had what? That was an eight-game winning streak coming off of that abysmal loss to Georgia. And if you told me in the ashes of that defeat against Georgia that Oregon was going to rattle off eight wins in a row, I wouldn't wouldn't have believed yeah. you. So that, that said a lot uh, about this team. Absolutely. And I think, you know, even looking at, how close that Washington state game was. I mean, again, if they had lost that game, yeah, the whole narrative could have really shifted in a, in a big way, you know, because I think Nick's had a pretty devastating interception earlier in that Washington state game. Yeah. Um, but he was able to, you know, redeem himself, played great in the fourth quarter, win the game. And then he really, as the team went on a tear, so did Nick's where, Coming into that Washington game, Nix was in many ways the the co-runner for um, you know the the Heisman candidate coming out of the Pac-12 alongside of Caleb Williams and Penix had kind of been relegated to yeah maybe next year status but um, you know of course we 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 know what happened the the, the Huskies you know, have a barn burner against Arizona. They get out of that. And then they begin to slowly rebuild that defense. And they hold California to 21 points. They hold Oregon State to 21 points. And then the big game in Autzen, the historic game, the game that the Huskies have never won in the history of their program. They beat Oregon on the road in Austin, a ranked top 10 Oregon team, 37 to 34. You and I were, we were both there with uh, a number of friends. So obviously we talked about how 
you know, that was a pivotal, pivotal game for both teams. But in retrospect, now it truly feels like for the Huskies. And I don't think it was a program defining loss for the Ducks, but I think it was a program defining win for the Dogs. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Because this is, I mean, we talked about it. This was the the dragon that Washington had never slayed. And that even, even as great as Chris Peterson was, you know, his best year coincided with Oregon's worst year, you know, and his two wins against Oregon coincided with Oregon playing backup quarterbacks with bad teams, basically. Mm -hmm. And essentially, by the time Oregon kind of got their act together, he couldn't hold them off um, right. any longer, you know. And so for for Kalen DeBoer in year one to go into Austin and beat an Oregon team that was playing really, really well, um, and that played really, really well in that game. Um, yeah. That yeah, that was a that was absolutely a program defining win for Washington. I'm 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 guessing it's the type of game that you're still going to be referencing. You know, whenever Kalen DeBoer retires as Washington's coach, that you know that's going to be on the short list of the games that you remember as as kind of defining his career. I would guess. Yeah, you know, and I mean, a lot of Husky fans and commentators have tried to come up with a name for that game. You know, the slip is one that I've, you know, heard. But to me, one of the great stories that I think is part of what makes college football great, and it's the redemption arc of kicker Peyton Henry, sure. who loses the game in 2018. Wait, was it tw was that 2018? Yeah, 2018. Yeah. And then his senior year, final opportunity, makes the kick that helps, you know, the dogs get that victory. And uh, certainly a great redemption story for him. As the season unfolds, what I find somewhat interesting is in the following game, Washington is riding high. They've, they've now reeled off uh, five wins in a row. And they're going in to, you know, Colorado. And Mark, they put up 54 points. They went 54 to seven against Colorado. And during that game, I looked at my friend and I said, this is the game that's going to cost Michael Penix the Heisman. Um, and the reason being is they didn't really throw the ball because they just were able to run the ball without any trouble. And so his statistics were... It was, you know, one of the one of the only games that he was held to, you know, less than 280 yards passing, um, one one passing touchdown. Not he didn't pad his stats the way that you you might kind of expect a potential Heisman candidate. So again, you know, we then look at what happened in the airs or excuse me in the Washington State game, and Penix has his best game of the year statistically. Uh, puts up massive yards, uh, you know, has a receiving touchdown, a rushing touchdown, passing touchdowns, um, and they win the Apple Cup. And that's when the the Heisman hype finally kicks in when the season's over. But there were all these kind of variances across the season where it was like, if he could have just kept building, maybe that momentum could have taken off a little earlier. 
but it just didn't work out that way. Uh, but tremendous turnaround for the season for the dogs. They they go into the bowl game uh, 10 and two, something that they would have never expected at the beginning of the season. At least most fans would, would not have. And, um, you know, winning that Apple Cup after having Jaden Delora plant the flag on a Husky, you know, the, the Husky 50-yard line. Sweet, sweet moment for the dogs to get that that payback against the in-state rivals. Yeah, in, incredible performance in the Apple Cup. Um, I, I think I would, I would just maybe offer that uh, if Michael Penix threw a few more touchdowns against a one and 11 Colorado team, it may not have put him over the hump in the Heisman conversation. Well, so again, I'm not saying that he needed to do that in order to, to win the Heisman. I think that his numbers as they, they finished the season stood for themselves, but he had been building with Arizona, Cal, Oregon state, and then he has his seminal moment with that Taj Davis pass, right. dicing up Oregon in the second half, slaying the dragon, as you said. And then the Colorado du- game from a statistical standpoint was kind of a dud. Whereas yeah. if he had thrown for 400 yards and three touchdowns, I think at that point, maybe more national media might have picked something up and started to say, hey, Let's look at this guy again. And then with the the Washington State game, even further. But it was just, you know, I mean, it's just it was a little air that got let out of the balloon. Yeah, I I I guess I'm I'm looking at the top four Heisman vote getters. Caleb Williams played on championship Saturday. Max Duggan played on championship Saturday. CJ Stroud made it to the playoff. Stetson Bennett, we know, won a national title. Like if if you're not playing on the final weekend and you're not competing in the in the college football playoff it seems right. like in this day and age like you're just so, so it's like michael Penix. he could have thrown for 500 yards against colorado and maybe he moves up from eighth to seventh you know but i i don't i don't i don't think that uh i i think that looking forward michael Penix is absolutely on the short list of heisman contenders yeah. next season but it's going to require winning the pac-12 right and potentially making the college football playoff to really have a shot at that. Right. Right. And, and, but, you know, again, my point is not that, uh, you know, that, that he has been done some great injustice, but there was just, there were opportunities for him to really break through onto that national scene and that national conversation that just didn't quite hit on all cylinders when the opportunity was there. So like if he had, you know, if he had had a great game against UCLA or if they had not well, for lost sure, to, for sure UCLA and Arizona state. Yeah. If sure. they had not lost to to Arizona state, let's say they lose to UCLA. Yeah. They, they win in at Arizona state and then they go on the run that they go on at yeah. that point, lots of conversation is taking place, but just these little setbacks that kind of kept it from really, catching catching momentum yeah but let's talk about the last few games of the regular season for the the ducks um obviously a tremendous win at home against utah coming off of that loss to the huskies followed by a disappointing and confounding loss 
to the, the Oregon State Beavers. So, you know, how do you as an Oregon fan kind of process those last two games? You know, I the more distance I have from it, I think the more I'm, I find myself kind of remembering that one, that Oregon did play the toughest schedule on paper that an Oregon football team has ever played in that they played six teams that were ranked in the top 25 at the time that they played them. That was just in the regular season. Um, and they played three teams that were ranked in the top 10 at the time that they played them. Um, and they beat two of two of those teams, uh, teams that were coached by Chip Kelly and Kyle Whittingham. Like if you told me that going into the year, you know, we kind of talked at the beginning of the year about Dan Lanning and you said, his youth is going to cost him a game or two. Mm-hmm. And you would probably point to the Washington and the Oregon state games mm-hmm. as examples of that. And, and maybe that's fair. Um, but I think I would say if, if, if Dan Lanning got out coached by Kalen DeBoer and Jonathan Smith, um, then you would also have to say he out coached Kyle Whittingham and Chip Kelly, which I'll take that for a first year head coach, first year running a program you know, to, uh, to do that is pretty impressive and to compete against this schedule and come out of it with a 10 win season. Um, when all is said and done, uh, I think there's more positive signs than not. Obviously the way that they lost to Washington and the way that they lost to Oregon state are those, they're two losses that are just going to sit in duck fans minds, you know, forever. Like they're, they're on the short list of the all timers. They always will be. But I think if you're kind of talking about like the trajectory of the program, it's still like, but part of what makes those games so maddening is that they were in control of both of those games and going to win both of those games. You know, in the Washington game, late in the fourth quarter, they were very much in control of that game. You know, in the Oregon State game, midway through the third quarter, they were well in control of that game. And that's what makes makes it frustrating is is you can identify a dozen different things in each of those games that if they go differently, they come out of it with a win. Um, and so it's maddening on the one hand, but it's also like, but that's also the sign of a team that's that's playing pretty well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the the maddening losses of the Mario Cristobal era weren't so much we were in control of this game and let it slip through our fingers. It's mm-hmm didn't show up for this game you know we got dominated from the opening stretch we fell behind by 21 points Mm -hmm. um and so i think that um as the years go by i'm 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 still more optimistic that that the landing era is going to unfold in a way that we're going to look back at that first season and see see it as a positive trajectory not as some kind of sign of impending doom that they couldn't close out their their two rivals yeah. And I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. I do want to go back to kind of the the comment about out coaching because, you know, it, it in many ways, it's not apples to apples. So, you know, it, I think most people would agree that in every Pac-12 game that Oregon played this year, they were the the, the more superior team in terms of pure talent so you know to say that you know it was all things were even and dan lanning out coached 
you know, Chip uh, Kelly and Kyle Whittingham purely on the merit of, you know, his coaching acumen. I don't necessarily think that that's fair. I think it's almost like you have to kind of add a little bit of a handicap. And that's not to say that Kyle Whittingham has garbage uh, over there in terms of his players or same thing with Chip Kelly. Those guys have both cultivated their rosters and done a great job, but Oregon has been the premier recruiting, you know, team in the PAC 12, you know, for the last five or six years. And uh, so, you know, just to say, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say that, that it's purely just that he outcoached Whittingham and uh, and Chip Kelly, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but oh no, I'm uh, no, I, I know I'm right. Uh, the UCLA game and the Utah game were both at home, so sure. so you've got you've got the built-in advantage of home. You've got superior talent, um, and you know, and and again. The, the the statement that I kept making throughout the year to you was, you know, you live by the fourth down, you die by the fourth down. And it worked in the UCLA game. And it worked at the end of the Utah game. So, you know, you just got to clap your hands. But then you also have to be able to go, okay, yeah, you know, if you take that kind of a risk reward and spread it out, spread it out over the course of the season, you may not draw uh you know a 21 every time you know you 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 take the cards i i i think i dispute your connection to recruiting rankings versus talent if if we're looking at say the nfl and we're comparing like the new england patriots during the tom brady era and the new york jets during the tom brady era we wouldn't say, well, the New York Jets have a ton of high first-round draft picks and the New England Patriots don't. Therefore, the New York Jets are the more talented team. Like, we don't we do not do that with professional sports. We, look, we say, oh, the more talented team are the players that have proven themselves in the actual competition. That's what talent is. So if I'm looking at Utah as the back-to-back Pac-12 conference team, I would say... They have as much talent as anybody. Whether they were ranked that high as high school players is irrelevant. As far as putting an actual product on the field, they have as much talent as anyone. I look at this Husky team that you have been praising nonstop for the last six weeks, Warren, and I'm saying you guys have a lot of talent. You have one of the most talented receiving cores in recent memory. You have an incredibly talented quarterback. You have a talented group of pass rushers you had a talented offensive line like i don't care what the recruiting rankings suggest i'm saying when i look at the when i look at the team on the field i say the huskies are a really talented team mm-hmm. you know um like they jump off the screen some of those players with how talented they are utah's a talented enough team that they beat usc twice this year yeah. they were the only yeah. team that beat usc in the regular season and they beat them twice Right. And the second time they beat them, they destroyed them. So to like to minimize Oregon's win over Utah by saying, well, you know, Oregon has guys that on, on these recruiting rankings of guys breaking down high school film were determined to be superior talent-wise. Like 
to me that 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 doesn't totally compute <laughs> it's like utah is putting just as many nfl guys into the league as as oregon is like yeah. which tells me that they've got pretty good players like right. and utah averaged this year close to 40 points a game yeah oregon a week after playing one of their worst defensive games in the year held them to 17 they picked off cam rising three times they chased mm-hmm. him down all over the field they completely restructured their defensive game plan in the week following that Washington game. That's coaching. Like that's that's coaching to come in with a game plan against a team that hung 43 on USC a couple weeks before that and to hold them to 17 points in a critical game. Like that's coaching. That's not just, you know, it's not like Dan Lanning's just rolling out a bunch of footballs and saying, all right, we've got the more talented <laughs> team. Like you know, here it goes. So I, I, I just, I don't buy the whole, like, we're going to, we're going to knock him anytime he loses, but, but anytime he beats a really good coach, which I think we would admit Kyle Whittingham, Chip Kelly, oh, really, really good coaches. Of course. Anytime he beats a really good coach, we're going to say, oh, well, it's just because he had more talent. That, 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 that's totally inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it because I mean, you just you just took the the last five minutes to basically explain that the the Oregon's recruiting rankings are essentially meaningless, and that really what really matters is can you identify and evaluate talent well, and can you develop talent well? And I would agree with that. Or if you or can do that, that- Dan Lanning has signed a top 10 recruiting class will mean nothing in three or four years. If those guys aren't winning conference titles, competing for, you know, bigger prizes, like, yeah, the, the, the recruiting rankings are entirely theoretical, like, and it's only when you have a team like Georgia that dominates the field that we say, well, yeah, they have better players, but Texas A&M had comparable recruits and had a miserable season. Yeah, you know, so it's it's more than just piling up a star ranking on a recruiting right. site. You have to do something with that talent, right? And we'll we'll talk about that more at a later date. But uh, let's let's finish up with the bowl game and any kind of final conclusions as we wrap this thing up. So the Huskies go into uh, you know San Antonio, in many ways very similar to how the Ducks started the season playing a neutral site game. I'm putting in quotes here, a neutral site game in Atlanta against Georgia. Uh, the the stadium in San Antonio was 90% uh, Texas fans, in part because the cost of getting a flight to San Antonio at that time right. was outrageous. And on top of that, flights were being canceled all over the country because of severe inclement weather so the the huskies did not show up at that stadium because of factors were that were out of their control it was almost an entirely texas uh fan base and um and the dogs did some things in that game that really surprised and i think it gave a lot of hope for the future one of those things that stood out to me was um you know people didn't really i don't think gave enough attention to the defensive tackle talent that texas had on that team they had two dts that are rated as two of the top defensive tackles coming out of uh college football this year and 
the Huskies, you know, put up 170 yards rushing against that uh, defensive squad. And then on the other side, we know that uh, Bijan Robinson and their their number two tailback um, were out of the game. But this was a an offensive line that, along with the Huskies and the and the the Oregon Ducks, was one of the most uh, highly praised offensive lines in the country, and um, they they could not run the ball against this Washington defense, which forced Quinn Ewers to really um, have to pass regularly, and that ultimately ended up you know costing them uh, the game. But the Huskies completely dominated both lines of scrimmage, which is not something that we necessarily would have anticipated uh, six or seven weeks ago. But I think it's a, an evidence that the, the Huskies are moving in the right direction. Michael Penix had what I would consider to be a C-plus game. Yeah. And the Huskies still won the game, although the score was 27-20. It felt like they were in control for most of the game. So um, definitely, definitely a great way to end the season. The Huskies finish 11 and two. And Mark, one, one thing that I wanted to, to mention before we kind of wrap this up, we all have talked about Michael Penix Jr. and these wide receivers and deservedly so. They've been amazing. We've talked about the offensive line that protected Penix all year long, kept him from injury. Uh, they deserve praise. But Mark, you know, I know you love these kind of stories. Mark's moments were were you know were created for these kind of stories. But Wayne Talapapa, transfer running back, grad transfer running back from the University of Virginia. We know about the tragedy, the shooting that took place on the campus of the University of Virginia. That happened just mere days before the Huskies played Colorado. And from that point on, the last four games of the season, I really believe in honor of his teammates, uh, his fallen teammates at the University of Virginia, Wayne Talapapa ran for 411 yards and five touchdowns on 48 carries for an average of 8.6 yards per carry and I think that that balance that we had in those final four games really was the difference that allowed us to finish 11 and 2 and gave us the opportunity to 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 have the best season that we've had in you know our, well since 2016 for sure yeah it's it's a great a great story uh, out of a heartbreaking story and um and you're absolutely right i thought i thought if anything he was underused a little bit um in those last few games especially against texas where 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 Penix wasn't necessarily feeling it the way that he was against you know the cougars in the apple cup and and so i'll be interested he's coming back right i mean you've got no, him he's 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 a He's out gone. of eligibility, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a, there's a couple of guys that we'll talk about them next week, but Danielle Ngata from uh, Arizona state, who was a highly touted recruit. And then uh, Dylan Johnson from Mississippi state, who's coming to the university of Washington with two years of eligibility. He's got 149 hatches as a, as a running back in that, air raid offense so 
Uh, he's going to be a unique weapon for this team. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But, Mark, let's talk about this this Oregon finish to the season. They didn't quack it. They they won the game, but break down any takeaways from the the UNC um, you know bowl game, the Holiday Bowl. Well, similar to the uh, you know the game we talked about up in Pullman, uh, this game came down to Oregon down thirteen points in the fourth quarter. They needed to score. They needed to get a scop. They needed to score again. Uh, Bo Nix, who who did not look fully recovered from his injury, still. Um, looked a little shaky, was not really willing to run the ball, um, had some some ugly throws, you know, where he's short-arming it to receivers where it looked like he still wasn't totally comfortable putting weight on that ankle. So, um, you know, hopefully, given an adequate amount of time, he'll be back next season looking his full self. But he gutted through and uh, and led them on a couple of dramatic drives including uh, a touchdown throw on a fourth down play on the, on the, um, you know, in the last minute of the game to chase Coda. And I got to say, I love this part about it, Warren Uh, chase Coda comes from Medford, Oregon. That's the same hometown. I'm from chase Coda's dad. Chad Coda was an Oregon legend. He was the best player on the 94 Oregon Rose bowl team that really kind of shifted the whole culture of Oregon football uh, he was a defensive back on that team and, and was the best player on that team. Uh, his So Chad's son, Chase, opted not to go to Oregon originally. He he followed Chip Kelly and went down to UCLA, mm-hmm. had a decent run with Chip, but decided to come up and spend his last year of eligibility playing for the Ducks, um, following in his dad's footsteps. And so for him to get the game-winning touchdown pass, in his last game in an Oregon uniform was just uh, it was just a great way to end it for um, for duck fans. And uh, you know, to beat North Carolina meant beating Drake may, who's going to come into next season on all of the Heisman shortlist that Michael Penix and Bo Mm -hmm. Nix are on. He's a very, very talented quarterback. Yeah. And Oregon held North Carolina uh, without a touchdown in the second half of that game. And um now Oregon was a two touchdown favorite. Is that correct? You are such a troll. <laughs> <laughs> Warren, they won the game, and that's all that matters. You know, uh no, I mean, yeah, Oregon did not play particularly well. Um well, and actually neither team, um both teams' defenses, you know, played well. They're, they're, neither neither team scored the entire third quarter. I mean, it was yeah. it was just kind of an uh an odd game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Or Oregon came in as uh as a two touchdown favorite and looked like they were going to take that kind of control. There, there was a time where Oregon was, I think leading by, no, Oregon had a tie game and they were about to score before the half and Bo Nix threw an interception that bounced off three different players limbs, mm-hmm. including one guy's toe. And then it was intercepted and run back a fair distance. And then North Carolina ended up scoring right before the half to take a 21 14 lead to the half. And that just kind of totally changed the complexion of the game. Um, But the point is, 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 you know, Oregon found themselves in a hole. They rallied. um, They held a very highly touted quarterback without a touchdown in the second half. And I think there's, there's, there's an interesting stat Warren that, uh, 
that I would just, you know, put out there for Oregon fans as something to maybe give them some sense of optimism. You know, we talked about the defense kind of struggling in the second half of the season and, uh, or, or not just the second half of the season, but um, over the course of the entire season and especially in the Georgia game and the Washington game, if you just look at their total yards in these last three games, Utah, mm-hmm. Oregon state and North Carolina. Yeah. Um, who are all pretty good teams. Uh, Utah, 326 total yards, Oregon state, 328 total yards. If you remember, they gave up three touchdowns, on very short fields in that game, uh, were the yeah. uh, in the second half, and then North Carolina three hundred and twenty-two yards. So that's an average of three hundred and twenty-five yards a game against three pretty good teams to close out the season. There were some rumors circulating that after the Washington game, Dan Lanning kind of took a little more active role in the defensive play calling. He seemed to have a call sheet that he didn't have. You know, there were some suggestions that maybe he was the one dialing up the the defenses. And um, obviously there were some issues with the run defense in the red zone, in particular against the Beavers that were alarming. But their two best defensive games of the season were the Utah game and the North Carolina game against a physical team that ran it down their throats last year. Yeah, so to have that kind of effort against, um, you know, one team that shoved it down their throats last year uh, that they had no answer for, and another team who had a, a talented quarterback on par with with the guy like Michael Penix who shredded them a few weeks prior, I think there's some reason there for optimism. Right, that, that side of the ball could look a little better next year if they can carry over some of that momentum. Absolutely. And, and we'll we'll take time in a couple of weeks to project ahead and look at uh, what the season ahead might look like. But for my money, as I was watching that holiday bowl game, the guy that continues to impress me that I think, man, that's that's the best player on this team is Bucky Irving. And he looked unstoppable against Washington and he looked unstoppable against North Carolina. And that's that's a guy that I think every Pac-12 defensive coordinator is going to have to spend some serious time studying this uh, this offseason. But, Mark, as we wrap it up, you know, I, pr- I appreciate your, your insight on the defense. Similarly, um, one final thing for, for me with the Dogs, the last six games of the season, so after the Arizona game, the Husky defense averaged – held their opponent to 22.6 points per game. So I think that if you can um, try to come close to that in 2023 as a team, you're feeling really, really good about your chances. So obviously there's going to be spikes, but if you can go a whole season averaging less than 23 points a game in the PAC 12 next year, you're, you're doing, you're doing something right. So both teams have a lot of questions to answer during the offseason, but both teams have tremendous reason for optimism. And we'll get into that and explain more in the weeks ahead. But uh, with, with that, we'll wrap it up. For all my dog fans, it's good to be back. 
Um, enjoy these next several months of being Husky fans. You have the upper hand. You're 11 and two. You have victories against the Cougars, the Beavers, and the Ducks. So just savor the flavor of this offseason because we have no guarantee of what next year will hold. But with that, I'll wrap it up and say to all my dog fans, go dogs. And and I'll say to all the dog fans, I agree with Warren. Enjoy this. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So enjoy it. Uh, by all means, soak up this once-in-a-lifetime experience. And to all my Duck fans, go Ducks. All right. We'll catch you next time.